The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. With you, Scott, uh, crowing about yourself always bleeds into making fun of yourself. <laughs> it's often hard to tell the difference. <laughs> oh, boy. And we're live. It's uh, Wednesday, September 8th, 5.04 p.m. Eastern Time. You forgot the year. Wait, 2021. Good. And, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> and we're not allowed to have fun anymore. But before we have our wonderful guest, Dominic Packer, to talk about his new book uh, with Javen Bevel, we're going to have a monologue from, or no, a commentary from, from Scott, and then personal news from Scott. And then Ben has a short monologue. You, you think I should tell everyone? Wait, yeah. What was your personal news? Okay, okay, okay. I'll tell, I'll tell everyone. I'm not sure. Scott, in a text message before the show, I have some personal news to share on the show. <laughs> like... Well, you know, so, big, so I've had, um, you know, like for the last while, all these emails that I haven't responded to. And it's been really preying on me. Has that ever happened with you? You know, no. like you, like in you just. It doesn't prey on me, but yes. It doesn't. <laughs> and, and then every, like every day you feel like you're going to do it and you never do it. And then you're like, I'm going to sit down and do it. Today was the day that I sat down. I did it. And I, I, I have a, like um, a clean email conscience. So basically, if you have so everybody received, send Scott wow. emails, bombard him with emails <laughs> so that he will get back into the hole because he yep. doesn't really deserve to have a clean email That's contest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hit him now. Hit him hard. I just feel, I feel pure. I feel pure. Mm. Um, I feel also uh, slightly better than everyone else um, because yes. uh, I have responded. Or maybe I feel like Did everyone... you actually answer them or you deleted them? Um, let, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a HIPAA violation. Um, and I, you, you may not ask that on this show. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It, people are sloppy when it comes to hip hop, but we're, we're quite, quite strict. Okay. Anyway, that was my news. Oh, that's pretty great, though. That's actually kind yeah, of. I totally great. get that. Um, ben. All right. So I, 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 as you all know, we have been. Uh, we had to decide when to celebrate the 500th episode. And we decided to celebrate the 500th episode over the course of five episodes, in part to give ourselves a grace period in case we had misnumbered anything over the 500, roughly, episodes of In Love of Fun. Now, uh, for reasons that um, you may not have appreciated, um, I have had cause to do a bit of an audit of not all of our enumerations of In Lieu of Fun episodes, but the first 50 or so. And the reason is that I have been 
every day or every couple of days posting one of the back episodes to our uh, podcast feed um, because several of you seem to like uh, the audio versions of these things. And so I, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, it may be news to some of you, we don't have a large staff here, so I actually do it myself. And along the way, I have been checking how has our enumeration been. And uh, so this is in my role of the as the inspector general of In Lieu of Fun that, you know, is the, for example, we claim that today is episode 503, but is it really? So um, I regret to inform you that there are some errors <laughs> in the first 50 enumerations of, of, of episodes of In Lieu of Fun. And I, I, I just want to share the interim findings with you. Um, so I'm going to uh, share my screen here. And what you'll see is that... Um, this, this uh, is going to throw off all our models. Exactly. It's, it's, it's actually a real problem that this has happened. <laughs> so what you're going to see is that the first one, which is in lieu of fun test, uh, doesn't have any problems, right? Um, and then YouTube conveniently um, does things in rows of five. So you should just be able to like scan the left hand thing and say five, ten, 15, looks pretty good so far, 20, 26. Whoops, there's a problem. All right, so the problem here is that we skipped episode 21. Um, but fortunately, uh, we uh, redid episode 28. Um, so that kind of cancels itself out. And we're, we're back on track by episode 30. But here's where things get to be a problem. Okay, we're fine on episode 35. We're really good on episode 40. Um, but then look what happens. And this is what happens when I posted the episode this week. We, go oh, we should have David Plotz back. Sorry, we, I just saw We him. go from episode 40 to 41 to 43. And then we stay at episode 43 <laughs> for... Uh, three episodes, ending I, that group of five at episode 44. And so what you'll see is that by the end of our 50th episode, we are only at episode 49 <laughs> because we have three episode 43s. Um, and, then I, you skipped early, and then you skipped earlier, right? So, well, we, we, we skipped... Um, we skipped episode 21, but we repeated episode 28. So we kind of made those two errors oh. canceled each other out. But it turns out if you repeat episode 43 three, uh, <laughs> twice, so you have three episode 43s, and you don't compensate for it by having, say, no episode 47, 48, and 49, you throw things off by episode 50. So I just want to fully disclose in the... That, I don't want everyone to know that you were in charge of this. Until I was totally in charge of this. <laughs> to this like is what happens. Or something. This is what happens when you have morons running on your show. Um, and uh, so I just, you know, I feel like, you know, it may be a HIPAA violation, 
but since I'm doing it to myself, I have the right to disclose my medical I information. I don't know about that, but go ahead. But yeah, so medical information. That episode with Will DeWitt, my friend, who's like was the doctor who was like working on COVID with COVID patients, he says that all of his all of his patients now come in and have watched that episode <laughs> because they Google his name and it's the first thing that comes up. <laughs> like, and so he's like, Great, this is fantastic. So anyway, I just wanna say, um, this is episode 503, give or take. <laughs> um, and I think we should add a give or take, plus or minus, uh, in, uh, in or around, on or about, as we would say in court filings. Uh, um, so I think we should just uh, have that as a as a give a margin of error when we discuss we, our our we, episode numbers. Can we just just have two different calendars like the Julian and Gregorian? Yeah, or the Lunar Solar. We can have yeah, right, right, Lunar Solar. You're right, exactly. The sort of Jewish versus Islamic approach. We could correct for it, like the having a second month of Adar, like the right. Jewish calendar does, or we could never correct for it, like the Muslim calendar. We just does, corrected and for just it with get five episodes, of and just get further and further off the <laughs> the actual right. uh, 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 right, right. calendar. But, but Kate, as Kate points out, though, we actually we intentionally did this to ourselves by having. But, but that assumes we have had too few oh episodes. Whereas doing episode 43 over <gasps> and over again, what if we made the problem worse by having <laughs> five right. episodes? I have no idea where we are right now. Maybe we should hire someone to count it for us. Anyway, anyway. the audit the audit will continue. Um, we are not allowed to have fun anymore. We are also not allowed to have an accurate count of in lieu of fun. But we are allowed to have Dominic Packer join us uh, Kate, introduce our guest. Dominic Packer, it's so nice to have you on. Um, Dominic is a psychology professor at Lehigh, the Lehigh University, where my dad went to, to, um, to college, actually, um, and where Scott's sister went to college. Also, I'll just like, add your bits and you're talking about before the show. Um, and he is the author of The Power of Us with J. Van Bevel, which is this, I, I actually would just like love for you to describe the book. I, you gave me a description in like the, in like an, the email that you sent, um, and I haven't gotten a chance to read it. It is ordered, but I, and I'm oh. excited for it. I mean, like, no, no, I like, you don't understand that. So, I don't know if you know, do you know that I have a psychology, like my background is in cognitive psych. I yes. do, but yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I love this stuff. And I'm very excited to talk about this with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. Also, I will note that, are you Canadian? I am Canadian. We love Canadian. Jay is Canadian as well. We, we love, uh, I, I love Canadians. I'm a Canadian of Awesome. I will say I actually have filed my paperwork to become a US citizen. Um, oh, congratulations. We love well, Canadian so. turncoats. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we just keep both. Play, play both sides. Is my so goal. before we get into the book though, Dominic, can we talk a little bit about kind of like you and what you study and kind of yeah. how you got there? Um, it looks like sure. you, you know, you were at McGill and uh, UT, so. Yeah, well, first I just wanted to say it, it is a real, we're doing 
all book promotion this week, but this is the thing I've been looking forward to the most, honestly. Um, Did you get to drink with a us? Lurker. Oh, I got to drink you <laughs> in my university office. And, um, but I've been lurking in the YouTube side of In Lieu of Fun for a long time, um, mainly because it's the end of the day and I'm like wrangling my kids and I'm usually listening, not watching. But um, so Crowdcast hasn't worked out. But uh, I think I was trying to figure out what the first episode I caught was. And I think it was around this time last year with Katie Ballou, um, when she was talking about white supremacy in her book. Um, pretty sure that was the first episode. Uh, in any case, so it's a, it's a real thrill to be here. Um, yeah. Well, it's great. With For any me, luck, we won't have any tech problems with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see how that goes. Um, so yeah, I'm a social psychologist. I went to McGill University of Montreal. Um, and then I went to grad school at Toronto, where I met my office mate, Jay. Um, we didn't like each other very much at first. He's, he's very eager. Uh, and I was a year ahead. So it just seemed, it was just too much. Um, he also tried to store his hockey equipment in our shared office, which um, smelled that's really- That's being Canadian. That, that is that, such right, a that's Canadian like problem. Every, right, exactly. <laughs> that's like, that's like a, every Canadian sitcom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but in Canada, that's a faux pas, I have to say. Hockey equipment, shared office, no, no good. Um, that's what makes it great comedic material. That's right. Followed by further comedic material, which we actually opened the book with, um, we, we became close a few months later when uh, we went to a departmental wine and cheese, which was filled with academics and there'd been some illustrious speaker and uh, we're, you know, young grad students and the lowest of the low, really. And Jay <laughs> choked on a piece of cheese at the wine and cheese and I cheese ended night. up saving his life. It was cheese night, yeah. Wait, did, you, did, oh my did God. you actually save his life? I actually gave him the Heimlich at the wine and cheese. How, wow. how all good co-author relationships start. Yeah. With, Shit. with vomiting and, uh, and the Heimlich maneuver. Yeah, wow. that That's an awesome story. because that's, that's how Kate and but, I met, too. But, but not only that, but <laughs> as having been a grad student, I can just say that if there's nothing more mortifying than choking. It was mortifying. <laughs> this speaks to our personalities. So Jay so wait, 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 is... but before you go on, we gotta we gotta focus on this. <laughs> because so is this a power move that like he's not here, you are, so you tell this story? No, he just said it was um, in the introduction of the book. Okay, so it's like he if he mean, were yeah. here, would he tell this story? Or is that like uh, you he know, is this like slightly differently? <laughs> Same story. In his version, I mean, does I... do you choke and he does <laughs> Now, in his version, he's less greedy though. So, so what happens next is was he, he like housing the cheese? So he was, yeah. And after he just come from hockey, he practice. wanted to go back. He wanted to go back and eat more. And I was so horrified, I had to go home. Like, I, I, I can't watch you eat cheese. I can't watch you do this to yourself again, Jay. Exactly. <laughs> this is like every, then, every Canadian buddy movie. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, totally. <laughs> We've continued to have food, food adventures or misadventures. So <laughs> I've observed him eat a raw sausage by mistake. I've seen him eat raw chicken in Times Square by mistake. Um, 
It's Wait, raw chicken in Times Square? Like, why? How? What? Like, where was we were it completely raw or just mostly raw? It was raw. So we. we I, I just want to say that that I've been to a lot of conferences and oh, raw chicken God. has not been served. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic, you're yeah. surpassing. I mean, I really want to talk about your book, but yeah, so far, I, like we're going to just see how long we can keep the subject on choking on raw chicken before we get to your book. Yeah. The research is super boring relative to this. So, yeah, we were at this conference. We were we had a symposium. We were both presenting at. I think we were both assistant professors by this point, but still junior, and you know nobody knows who we are. And so, and the and the symposium was about moral disgust, which we'd done some work on. And um, the instruments we, we had like area. Right. totally, yeah, yeah. work. So um, yeah. after we had about an hour and a half before the symposium. So we decided to go to a themed restaurant in Times Square. I won't say which one, but it was super dark and we were really engaged in our conversation and Jay ordered some sort of salad with supposed to be grilled chicken on it. But we're talking and it's dark and he starts eating and about halfway in, he realizes this tastes, there's something odd about this chicken. So he shines his phone flashlight on it and realizes it's completely raw. Like I don't think it had touched the grill. Um, so, I mean, we're disgusted. Why so would you realize that? Like literally the second it touched your mouth, yeah. like it I, feels I, so I, different. I, I'm suddenly feeling like I have a much more sophisticated palate than I imagined. <laughs> take you more than three bites. Right, right, exactly. I think I would get it. In the dark. I think I'd get it right <laughs> away. Yeah. But that's so I'm not gonna. Yeah, Jay may have a counter narrative I see on the, the chat. That, that's a valid point, but he ate a bunch of it though. So we call the waiter over and he gets the manager. And, and this is the best part. He, uh, we said, that, that, he offers to have it cooked. Better than, okay. They yeah, offer to cook it? Bit, the guy says, oh, I'm, we'll do you fine, but, but if you want us to cook it more, I think he said more. We'll, we'll do that. Um, and Jay's like, oh, I'm, no, this is disgusting. What are you going to do about it? And the guy says, literally, he says, well, well, we'll take half the price off the bill. And we're like, what? And he said, well, you already ate half of it. <gasps> I am. Um, oh. I just want to say that this sounds like you guys got like punked. I don't know. Like, I, like, like, I mean, like to like, like to like be at a conference about disgust and then to like have something like that happen. Oh yeah. And then to like have like a weird moral challenge of like, do I pay for this? No, that you were you were <laughs> you were in punk. You guys were the experiment. Yeah, we like, but I, I want to understand your the colleagues were thinking like between the raw chicken and the book. So so like uh, okay, so you bond over tissue, not. I get it. Yeah, you see what I did there? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you bond over the, you know, hockey equipment, not liking each other, Heimlich maneuver. There's some raw chicken in Times Square where somebody was playing, let's 
see what we can get the Canadians to eat and pay for. <laughs> and then somehow there's a book. What they're so hell? nice. They're so nice. They'll they're totally so nice. Pay They'll for even it. pay for the raw chicken. They made to me. Um, half of it. Uh, yeah, half of it. Um, so, so how did you get from there to what the book's about? Well, so along the way, we did a little bit of research together. So starting in grad school, we um, we started studying social identities. So the group, the the way people define themselves in terms of the groups that they belong to, and the implications that has for all kinds of behaviors and perception and decision making. Um, so we started in grad school by studying really discriminatory behavior or um, you know bias of various kinds. We did implicit bias work. Um, we did work with fMRI, looking at brain responses, how people react to the faces of the members of different groups, uh, in-group and out-group. And then over time, it's morphed into all sorts of directions. Um, and to get to the sort of premise of the book, what we're interested in is how human identity is a, is a multifaceted thing. So we, we have multiple selves, right? There's aspects of ourselves that are deeply personal and individual. There's relational selves, which is you in relationship to specific others, like you're a parent or a child or a professor or a student. Um, and then there's the groups we belong to, which for many of us become deeply important, um, including like being a member of say the In Lieu of Fun community or the Greek chorus, right? These, these identities start to really matter to people. And that has a bunch of consequences. And in particular, different identities, the same person has multiple identities and as different identities come in at a focus for them, it changes their perceptions, it changes uh, their preferences, their goals, it changes who's in and who's out. Um, and so the same person can go through the course of a day and actually behave quite differently without necessarily even realizing it, um, simply because different identities are coming online at different points in time. So fundamentally, that's the book. And we sort of go from perceptual effects. So Jay in particular has done studies on these can even affect taste and smell, not the taste of chicken apparently, but taste and <laughs> smell some pretty basic things all the way up through, you know, mobilizing large groups of people for social change, and, you know, revolution. But all of it hinges at some level on, on identities, especially identities uh, founded in the groups we belong to. So can we talk a little bit about how you're um, defining identity, because like, if it's self-defined, I feel like that's, <clears throat> I mean, I think you could, yeah, I think that there's just like an infinite amount of, it seems like a very hard thing to bound, so to speak, like just the idea of identity. Yeah. So we treat it generally as someone holds an identity if it's some aspect of the self that they place value on. Because there's certainly things about ourselves that we may not. Um, so we all belong to social categories, for example, that we may not necessarily value, like, or that, that's not an important part of who we are. So, you know, people don't necessarily categorize themselves that much on their hair color, for example. You you could divide up the world that way. You could make it a central part of who you are. That like I'm a brunette or I'm a you know, Asian redhead, um, but most of us don't make that a central identity, though you could, right? Like Anne of Green Gables, it was central Canadian hero, heroine. But um, so generally, that's how we think about it is it's, it's some social, if in the case of a social identity, it's a social category membership you have, but that for one reason or another, it's important to you. Um, 
either because you're personally putting value into it or in some cases because it's largely unavoidable like other people are are so prone to treat you as a member of that category that you're sort of potentially stuck with it whether you like it or not okay <clears throat> but like but all of that seems very relational like like your hair color example is like a really mm -hmm. is like one perfect example it's like if you're in you wouldn't think of your value as like a redhead if you live if like you live in a society that's full of redheads and then all of a sudden you go to college and all of a sudden you meet people that don't have red hair and you're the only one and that and you would don't value it until that moment and there's tons of things that lurk in our personality like that like i don't think of myself as particularly totally. good at baseball but if i met a bunch of canadians i'd be like hey i'm so much better at baseball than you <laughs> like, but the uh, i mean just but like yeah so like kind of like how do you how like part of it seems to me to also i mean and when you, i don't know how you design the studies like part of it seems to have kind of like a the 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 self-reporting bias that's inherent in like any type of kind of like if you're identi identifying something as yourself it's already something that you think of as important and thus probably have like publicized or said out loud in some type of way or like shared with the community yeah well so i mean i think you're making great point so first of all you're 100 percent right that the things we tend to think of ourselves in terms of are often the things that make us distinct in one way or another right um so and there's classic social psychology studies on this from like the 50s where they, they looked at for example um female children's identity and they were much more likely to see themselves as girls if they were in a classroom that was mostly boys but less likely to think of themselves as girls if they were in a classroom where there were plenty of other girls because it didn't differentiate them and this is part of that multiple selves issue that like a different points of our lives or even in the same day different situations you're in different identities will come to the fore because of that kind of dynamic that if you find yourself suddenly the only representative of a group and everyone's sort of looking at you like that then that's going to be part of your identity in that moment even though it might not ordinarily be right or it wasn't 20 minutes before in a different context so that's totally right and then methodologically we we employ multiple methods to try to look at people's identities. So sometimes there are groups that people belong to and we're measuring it. So with those questionnaires, we ask, how identified are you with this category? How important is it to you? How much, how often do you think about yourself as a member of this group? And that tends to actually predict quite a bit, but there are other times when for a variety of reasons, we, we want to strip away a lot of the baggage that comes with real life groups um, of one form or another. And so we create groups in the lab which is actually incredibly easy to do, shockingly easy to do. Um, what is an example of we talk about creating this in a group in a lab? Yeah, so in the book, we talk about these studies. Did you make some of them prisoners and some of them guards? No, I'm just kidding, sorry. Well, we do, we do talk about that study too, and I'd love to revisit that one. But um, so we talk about these studies from the 1970s, which I personally think are the most important, among the most important psychological studies ever conducted, but they're much less well-known than the prisoners and the guards, for example. And they're called the minimal group studies. And so this was done in the UK and the researchers were interested in trying to study prejudice and discrimination, but recognize that if you take real life groups like Protestants and Catholics or white people and black people, or there's, there's so much going on there, right? There's long histories and there's stereotypes and there's conflict potentially over resources. And, and there's you know histories of violence and there's all these factors and it's really hard to get a handle on what's doing what 
So they wanted to create a situation where they'd strip all that out, like create basically a social vacuum. And then you can slowly add stuff back in experimentally. We'll add a stereotype or we'll add conflict over resource and see what happens. And so they came up with this paradigm where you're creating what they called minimal groups, which is they're in a category, but there's like no meaning attached to it. And there's no reason you should have any preference for your category over any other. And literally you can do this by flipping a coin and which they did. So you more or less randomly assign people to say you're, you're on team A or team B, or you're a lion or a tiger, which are two groups that Jay and I have used a lot. Um, you never meet anyone in any, in either group. You, so there's no personal relationships. You, you've never heard of them before. They're not going to last more than about 15 minutes in the lab. And then they give you tasks to say, divide up resources between your own group and, and the other group. And what they find, and we still find very consistently is it doesn't get rid of bias that people immediately resonate to the team they've been put on, even if they know it's random, they're like, I'm a lion. Awesome. Lions are the best. And given a choice to divide up resources like money, they'll give more to the lions, even with no personal benefit, which is important. They did, they get nothing personally out of it, but they'll give more to their own team members than they will to the outgroup. Okay, so how so we've done this. yeah. Cause because this yeah. strikes me. Have you seen um Derek Delgadio's monologue uh, in and of itself? No. So this is I've been trying to get him on the show, but uh mysteriously he does not respond to my incessant tweeting at him. Uh, I do mm -hmm. think members of the Greek chorus, you should all tweet at Derek Delgaudio that he should come on in lieu of fun. Um, but that's neither here nor there. He did a uh, incredible monologue, which he performed uh, five, six hundred times in New York uh, and uh, was eventually made into a movie that was an amalgamation of the performances of it. Uh, and he's a... Um, it's basically about individual identities that people assume and the various identities that he's had at different times in his life. Um, I'm interested in the difference between individual identities. I'm a hacker or I'm a uh, in inclusive legal positivist or I'm a... Uh, I'm a, you know, something that doesn't really identify you particularly with a group or community mm. of people. It rather identifies you very individually in terms of what you do or how you think or um, with uh, the kind of group identity that you're talking about. I'm a brewer, meaning... I, that describes not that I'm part of a community of people who brew beer, but it describes actually how I spend my time, right? I'm yeah. not a brewer. Um, it, it seems to me there's, um, th there's one kind of identity that is group identity and that there's another kind of identity that's highly individualized and that's just the, the persona that we adopt. And I'm curious whether, whether, you know, how these differ from one another and how we wear many different of them at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So uh, undoubtedly we have identities of both kinds. There's things, even if they 
our sort of categories, but when we say we are a brewer or whatever, it really is, I'm talking about myself and my hobby or yeah, how I spend my time. And it differentiates me from other individuals I know, like in my social network, say. Um, and that's different than someone who could say the same thing, I'm a brewer and identify with it as a group of people. And, I, and there's various tip-offs as to what kind of identity it is. So for the person that's an individual, they don't really care about what other brewers do per se, right? And, and if brewers get a bad name in the press because there's some sort of brewing incident, doesn't really, they're not gonna feel shame or concern about it. They're not gonna be motivated necessarily to defend the community. That's very different than the person who, it is a community and they feel threatened when it's threatened and they're motivated to defend other members of it. And maybe they wanna become a leader. Like I'd, I'd like to take charge of the brewing community. Like the individual is not gonna do that, but the group member might. And That's so, like Scott and the inclusive legal positivist. Exactly. Or, yeah. yeah or, no, so for, it's the inclusive yeah. legal positivist. He's against okay. them. Yeah, yeah, vehemently. Um, what we so, find generally yeah. is people are very quick to take the collective type, but sort of surprisingly, we often think of it as individual and then you find yourself in a situation you actually do get defensive about the group even though you thought it was just a, a you thing. May, may, may I, can I jump in? I feel like maybe it's not like even a group thing. It's like a cooperation thing. Like, so it, it, it's like, I'm, it's not that I think of myself, oh, lion, but I have a commitment to people with whom I'm going to cooperate that we're going to act in a fair way um, towards one another, which means favoring, of course, that's what cooperative relationships are. Is they're partially exclusionary. So I wonder if that makes sense. So that's actually very similar to how I think about it. I'm not sure every social psychologist would agree actually with that, but I tend to think that the reason we do this sort of distally, like why we might have evolved to have this propensity to resonate even with a novel team you've never heard of before, is it's like a readiness to cooperate. It's like, we're looking for opportunities to ally ourselves with people. And when they come along, we're eager to seize on them and just see what happens. Um, but proximally, in terms of like the psychology of it, what it feels like, it tends to feel like positive emotion and feelings of attraction or tr feelings of trust. Um, so there's a sort of duality to it of like, it, it serves the purpose of cooperation, but it also comes along with this sort of psychology of, I like us and I wanna be part of us and I, I, I feel connected to you. Well, can I just push back a little bit? It just reminds me of like color war um, at camp. I don't know if you ever like went to a, you were ever, subjected to this horrible I was just thinking about that. <laughs> terrible institution. And to this day, if you say reds and blues, I I have a I have a side in that. Right. So I'm so a blue right, so, and I've always been a blue. Right. So that that but but there really is that sense that like you don't you you couldn't extend that past three, four days. Like it's like a thing. It's like a very limited thing because after a while, it wouldn't bleed into your real life. It's relatively autonomous because you would start thinking there's no real difference between reds and blues or lions and tigers in this way. So I just wonder if it's our ability to simulate. But people um, do it with sports teams all the time and they do but, extend it beyond. I mean, you know, I had lunch. Not really. 
Really? No, no, I had lunch the other day with somebody who will die on the hill of being a Yankees fan. And she is a, you know, like, this is a part of her identity. And um, she uh, knows it's inconsequential and unimportant. And yet that doesn't make her feel it any less. My dad used to have like a saying that like I was never allowed to like date a Yankees fan. He was a Red Sox fan. Like, but like he would like, I remember him like would be just driving in the car and there'd just be like a moment and he'd be like of quiet and out of nowhere, he'd just be like, do you ever think that like Yankees fans are just like morally unfit to like live in society? And I was like, <laughs> and have you ever dated a Yankees fan? I don't know. No, I don't think so, actually. Um, yeah, I know. No, it's true. It's kind of like, so anyway, so this is, go ahead. I'm sorry, Dominic. I didn't mean to like interrupt. Well, I was just going to say, to Scott's point, I mean, I mean, I think I would say we have a readiness for it. And if it doesn't manifest in something useful, then it's not going to sustain itself. But let's say you do group yourself as a tiger and the tigers come together and they start to develop norms and they start to develop yeah. a legal right. system of sorts, right? Then there's utility there and it's going to persist. And they become mm. interested in not letting the, the lions in because they would disrupt it or they have different norms or yeah. they don't abide by our rules. And it can very quickly, I think, actually become quite rigid. Could it be that the social meaning of identity is one of analogy? And that like reds and blues is basically an anal mm -hmm. like a t analogy to that like it is an, it like puts you in the context of who the person is vis-a-vis -vis everyone else and like you want know how to sort them and know how to categorize them and then like as that like as the game like descent like declines or like ends or whatever like that stops being a salient kind of cat like factor for categorization. So I'm like touching back my salience yeah. categories with Tversky there, but yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. I think we're ready to group the world. And then we're looking to see is this like, was that grouping diagnostic of how the world really works? And often it is because we create the reality around us. But other things, things can undermine it. And um, so there's a classic study, which you've probably heard of called the robber's cave experiment, where they took a group of two groups of young schoolboys, like eight to 11, and um, divided them into two groups. And then they they developed this serious rivalry with food fights and vandalism, and then they reduced the rivalry and sort of created social cohesion by creating what they call the superordinate goal. So there were things that only by working together these two groups of boys could achieve, and without achieving it, they couldn't eat because the food truck was stuck in the mud. There's all sorts of sort of stuff going on, but with those common goals, they formed sort of a new identity, which was a, a more superordinate collective. And um, the other day. I was listening to the show and you were talking about what happened after 9-11. I was just going to say that. We were just talking about I this in 9-11. Yeah. Exactly. It was a superordinated identity. Suddenly, Democrat-Republican became less salient and American became temporarily very salient. It was... Cooperate and... It also strikes okay. me to some extent the similar to what Tom Nichols was talking about when he talked about, as he said, like the paradox of... I don't know. It was, I was talking about moving the Overton window of like when you make things better and better that you continue to just find your range of harms or your range of like unhappiness, mm. like still, even though like 
by the metrics, things have improved. Everyone is like less hungry. So then you start complaining about getting raw chicken in your salad instead of being grateful that you got chicken at all. And then, like, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. So I, I want to ask as an, I, I, I know you're not an evolutionary psychologist, but I, I want to ask why this is evolutionarily to our advantage. So um, we divide into teams naturally. The inclusive legal positivists uh, and Scott and his minions go to war. Some of them end up getting killed. Um, why is this to the advantage of reproduction of the species? Of the, of the legal positivists. Right, the reds and blues. <laughs> I mean, why aren't portion of the show? Why aren't we programmed to love the members of the other team and want to mate with them? Oh, I have. Yeah, go go ahead. Donna. I mean, I think so. I think what we argue anyway is that it's not that we're programmed to affiliate to any particular kind of group, but we certainly seem to be wired to be groupy. And I think it comes back to Scott's point about cooperation. It's that as soon as you think you're part of some group with other people, it forms a momentary solidarity that allows for collaboration, cooperation, and trust that's really hard without it. There are other ways to trust. So um, you can develop trust with someone by a long-term relationship, right? That you, you, you've got a record of their behavior. Sometimes we can trust people we don't know personally, but through reputation. But in groups, um, it's been called uh, depersonalized trust, where it's, I trust you just because we're part of the same group. And I'm at least giving give you some latitude because of that, even though I don't know who you are. It sort of sets a foundation for us to form a relationship. Well, also because there's a sense but of accountability that you're in that group and the group can hold you accountable for like some type of, right. like speaks for you or like, does that make sense? That's right. Yeah, totally. So that's the sort of other side of group dynamics, which is we, we focus a lot on the, how we treat the out group but we're just, and sometimes actually more harsh internally than we are externally, um, because we don't like deviants within our group who are violating our own norms. And um, we really often care very much about enforcing our standards for behavior, including like say in the Greek chorus, right? Like we don't accept certain kinds of action or activity and we will crowd it out. It's Have you been doing a social experiment with us with that one person I've that we're not gonna name? Yeah. <laughs> We um, sure do not tolerate deviant behavior. No, we don't. Um, I do want to, I, I have a question. Well, I want to get to Genevieve's question, but I just want to say really um, that I think that there's also something to the evolutionary, like I'm going to posit that there is like to, to follow up, that if you're talking about the, like the multivalences of identity and that you can have multi, your ability to be chameleon-like and to, to, to identify or be taken in by like X number of groups is like your chances of survival are greater as an individual if you can fit into all of these, it, like as many groups as possible, right? So like, That's even right. though they might be going to war with each other, they like having having multiple types of identities can. So for the, the working title for our book for a long time was Social Chameleons. Yeah. So exactly that idea that we can change the color metaphorically of our skin, we can fit in with different categories of people to take advantage of the social opportunities that are out there. But there are, there's always this duality of when that's happening, it's helping you cooperate with some people, but unless it's like the 
truly a global community, inherently it's excluding others. And often we, we, we enforce those boundaries quite rigorously for a bunch of reasons uh, that we haven't talked about, but that, that are psychologically very meaningful for us. Cool, GDF. Hi. Hey yo. Did you have one in particular that you were thinking of? Yeah, whatever you can okay. do, all of them, one of them, whatever okay. you want to do. So I have a couple. Um, the first one is, so leaders like President Biden and Pope Francis, for very different reasons, are often criticized by Catholics for not being Catholic enough. And is this a normative part of the process of fostering dissent and a signal of potentially changing norms? Or is this simply like a fixed lens that the members of that group have yet to question? That's a great question. Great question. Yeah, so we, we have a chapter on leadership, um, which is a super complicated dynamic, I think, in groups. But I think you're pointing to something we talk a lot about, which is to have legitimacy, leaders have to be regarded as one of us. They, they have to be seen as part of the group and emblematic or exemplifying the group in some way. And for that reason, leadership is often a contest between different people who want to be the leader, and they've got different somewhat different stories about who we are and it's a battle for, for who has the most legitimacy in terms of their story. Um, and so, yeah, in the case of Joe Biden, for example, is he a good enough Catholic? It's, is he really one of us, right? Or is he, has he strayed too far beyond you know, Catholic doctrine that we can't accept him as a central member of our community and someone we would look to for, for leadership? Um, so leaders are often that's really what they're trying to do is exemplify that. I really am one of us. And the term that sort of psychologists use is um, rather than saying typicality, like I'm one of us in, as, as I'm in the most modal, ordinary member of the group, they use the word prototypicality, sort of like we expect our leaders to exemplify us. Like this is they like may Doug Medine's experiments with the tree. Much like, yeah, exactly. So it's like, we want them to be sort of super group members like they they have our qualities taken to the next level they're aspirational figures in, in a way that's at least those are the leaders we find most inspiring um and by we i don't necessarily mean all people right so like trump i think is actually a very powerful identity i was gonna say that <laughs> because he exemplifies a certain american version of identity that 60 plus percent of the country does not buy into at all and finds his person well obnoxious but a bunch of people actually find very appealing so this kind of leads me to my second question because when we're dealing with a leader and we're trying to understand their identity as that leader um how can we best weigh their authenticity versus a projection of that identity that they've adopted for utilitarian purposes that's a really good question too that's a really awesome question um i mean i think it's something group members are like highly attuned to. We're always looking for hypocrisy and, and a sign that you're not, that it's fake um, and inauthenticity. And it's really about whether you like deal the with them, GDF. Right. Well, that's, that's what that's all about, right? It's like, why do we care if they eat Philly cheesesteak or eat pizza with a knife and fork or you could have a beer with them? It's it's that sense of authenticity. And most of them don't pull it off, right? Like, um, like Josh Hawley, for example, I find deeply inauthentic. Um, Scott identifies a lot with JD Vance. Yeah, uh, that that guy I feel like em, embodies YLS conservative. A punchable uh, uh, face. Uh, <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's the thing is like what's so risable about people like JD Vance is the fact is that they're so inauthentic. I mean, that's 
what that's what's hysterical about them, which is in in a way, it's so ironic, of course, because he is so identified. I mean, the only reason why we would know his name is because he's responsible for this book, which identified a class of people in hillbilly elegy and gave of you know. I mean, it, he is. He is like the he wouldn't exist without identity politics. Um, uh, so uh, that, that's a um, strange thing. It seems to me, though, that there's a difference between people who organically arise out of an identity movement and people who mm -hmm. see the movement and glom onto it. I mean, whatever you say about Donald Trump, and I have certainly had my fair share to say about him, um, it seems to me he is not a J.D. Vance figure. He is somebody who uh, uh, hypothesized the existence of an identity he could form around himself, tested the hypothesis, and won. He's kind of an identity entrepreneur. J.D. Vance. Wow, that's a great that's a great expression. J.D. Vance, identity saw, entrepreneur, saw yeah, wow. the identity. You know, wow, there are these people around Trump, mm -hmm. and said, "I can do that." And of course, he actually can't. <laughs> um, and you know, Josh Hawley can raise his fist walking by, um, uh, but but nobody. N nobody, nobody buys, buys it. it, right? Yeah. And it actually takes courage to be Donald Trump, to be an identity entrepreneur, because you might flop. And, right. you know, if you walk down those, you know, come down yeah. that escalator and people just giggle at you, then you're Herman Kane. I mean, this is right? why he freaks out so much. Every to all of the, like the kind of like the personal, like to the to like the mocking and like attacks them so viscerally. I think, but but I think it's really important to distinguish between the people who are, you know, authentically, uh, authentically hypothesizing and testing an identity, um. And people who are just kind of me tooing an existing identity, uh, maybe successfully like Ron DeSantis, semi successfully, maybe unsuccessfully. I think that's hundred percent like right. JD Vance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I personally think Trump is deeply authentic. He's true to himself, and and what he says is what he thinks, and and it alienates a huge number of people, but it also resonates with a certain set. And so he's got that authentic, authenticity on his side. So the, the term identity entrepreneur is, is an awesome term. It was actually was previously coined by two social oh. psychologists, um, oh. Alex Haslam and Steve Reichert, I just want to say I made it up myself oh, I right that. now. And, and uh, uh, so yeah. I uh, will not claim to have coined it, but I will have claimed to have authentically independently. I mean, it's an awesome term. And they have a piece for anyone who's interested in, I think it was Scientific American for a few years ago about Trump oh. as a leader. Um, wow. Oh, where, that's where cool. I think they called him an identity entrepreneur. Um, yeah. All right. I'm wow. going to ask, I'm going to beg everyone's patience and ask one more and then I'm going to vanish. 
Um, but when you're dealing with, <laughs> exactly, Ben, uh, when you're dealing with competing ideologies, um, how can disparate social groups find common ground? And does it require both groups to hold that common goal? Or is there a way for them to come together in a, I don't want to say forced, but motivated fashion? Like, how do you motivate them to find that ground? And thank you very much. Bye, Judea. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful question. And I don't actually have a great answer other than I think that's the central challenge is to find. So we, we end the book by talking about future challenges where we think identity is, is a relevant issue. So climate change, can we rally some sort of global identity sufficiently to act on it? Um, inequality, especially in like the new gig economy where people are individual entrepreneurs ostensibly, right? So you're not a cab driver anymore. You're a rideshare guy who there's no collective there. Can can they rally to seek good wages and things? And um, but we also have that democracy, right? So there's clearly anti-democratic forces at work, which are pretty unified, or they're seeming to work together quite well. Can people who are pro-democracy, who have very different interests at times, but still need democracy to pursue those interests, can they put aside their differences? And it's I think it takes leadership. I think it takes people pointing out where there is solidarity and then helping people rally around that. Um, because I think totally. we have a readiness to rally, yeah. but it's not easy to spot. So can, can I ask a, um, a question about like, so the, your book is called The Power of Us, right? Right, so, yeah. so like the idea is like, don't be afraid of us versus them. But, and there's a, like, the problem is that us versus uh, us and them often leads to friend and enemy. Um, and actually, right. Schmidt, you know, Schmidt thought that like the, the, the most important social group, the political group was the people you're willing to kill for and the people you're willing to die for. Um, and so the question is how, like, I'm sure you've thought about it, obviously. And you, you're, you, you're, I mean, you, you've described the book so, I mean, it sounds so interesting. I'm, definitely ordering it right uh, after I get off this. But um, like what, how do we stop us versus them from becoming friend versus enemy? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always this duality of groups and these social identities give us a lot of positive things, but they come with these negative consequences. And what we're hoping to do in the book is, is help people take charge of that, that let's try to capitalize on the good things that, that come along with these things, but be aware of the potential for the negative. And one of the things we, we argue very strongly that any sense that what is often called tribalism, which isn't a term I like, but this sort of sense it's inevitable that you will discriminate and hate and dislike other people. It, it's not inevitable. That's not built in. Groupiness is, but the, the strong toxic sort of dynamic isn't. And what, what is well established, but is really not well understood, is that the way group members behave is they follow norms. The more you feel part of a group, the more you follow that group's norms. And groups can develop very toxic norms where they suppress all dissent, where they, uh, they spread disinformation, where they hate the other group. But groups can also develop inclusive norms, where they value other people, where they, their whole mission is actually to help others, people different from themselves. I think about like a lot of charitable organizations, right? It's, it's about helping others who are not part of our group. And that becomes normative. 
Um, so I've said Norm as many times, hopefully everyone's drunk. Um, <laughs> but fundamentally, we think that's, that's where the action is. I mean, uh, one of the things that kind of where all of this, the, and, you know, and some of the sociological and the, and the psychology, psychology coming, come into policy in the law, it's like, um, it, one of the things that Robert Post has written about really extensively, which I think is wonderful, is about how there is no such thing as community without a set of shared norms. Like it's really not just a labeling thing. And that unless you do have kind of like collective like ideas around it. Um, and I just, so I wanna like really like before we, I have a, there's a poll up so everyone can vote on that. And then like there is, I just wanted to kind of, one of to kind of close it. Also, I love how everything in social psychology is so nested and like the things of identity are like run into like questions of authenticity and then like questions of, you know, categorizations and then questions of, um, I don't know, like the typicality or prototypicality. So the Doug Medine study that I talked about, I think I've talked about on the show before, but it's the study of experts, actually experts being able to basically sort prototypicality. And they did it with trees. So they did like landscapers, like people who worked with trees and they like surveyed them to ask what their prototypical tree was. And like they, and like lay people, and I forget what the exact group groupings were, but like in all, across all categories, even experts, there was a prototypical tree that was a complete fictional tree, a super tree. Like the prototypical tree was like a giant tree that was both like deciduous and coniferous. And like, <laughs> like there was just like, there was not, like a you know so i think that this i think that that's actually like maybe we're just all stuck with like these kind of like like identity entrepreneurs finding out how to be that like mutant tree that is like it tap, taps into like something really essential that we want like and that we like that like taps into all of our different like kind of like identities and our our, our plays on our empathy in that way i don't know Right. Um, yeah, so just to spin off that briefly. So I, I got contacted by um, USA Today, I think last week, because if you remember, but at a rally, maybe last Monday, Trump endorsed the vaccine. He oh, yeah. The crowd, you should get vaccinated. Like, yeah. And he got booed and, he, and jeered. And, and so their question was why? And, and our answer is that identity leadership, like being that prototypic tree is a double-edged sword. Like mm. on the one hand, it's given him tremendous influence because he's regarded as one of us. But he's and on the other hand, you have nobody to mate with. Sorry, no, no, that's not what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> a good thing. But, um, but yeah, he, he's locked into it as well. So there are limits on, if you define us as like, we don't believe in the vaccine, then you can't stray too far beyond that before it's like, wait, wait, maybe you aren't one of us. Maybe you shouldn't be leading right. us and you get booed and jeered. And so in that case, he's going to see the group leading him, right? Where they're, they're mm. pushing back. And he's, I, I doubt he'll speak much about it again, which is a shame because I think he would save a lot of lives if he would actually stand up. And well, I just want to say that we, we posed in the poll whether Crowdcast in lieu of fun should wage war on YouTube in lieu of fun. <clears throat> 80% of you voted no. I am going to be an identity entrepreneur here and say, let's get the bastards. Um, you know, if they won't come over to Crowdcast. You also uh, wanted to fight, you keep trying to fight Putin. So like, 
Yeah. That well, but I don't ask for ident you know, for people to form an identity around that. But I'm saying, we the few, the crowd cast people should have identity pride in watching authentic in lieu of fun on Crowdcast with the Greek chorus and we should be prepared to rumble with the crowd with the the, the non-authentic okay. YouTube posers and if you're one of those YouTube posers we're coming for you no thank you I'm <laughs> I, I say I voted no I'm a conscientious objector I can't vote uh, I'm, a, I'm, but, I'm, a, I'm a believer in the Kellogg brand fact. I do not. I, uh, I, I, I love that a cereal thing? What? Is that like a... <laughs> Yeah, that's the cereal thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Beyond um, Industries. Um, anyway. <laughs> Man, no one likes my really bad jokes about international law. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I'll just keep making jokes about trees. And, and yet, and but and yet, you wanted to pull together some in like International Law Week. Or something. I know. We're I know. We're going to talk about that. Dominic, please come back again. <laughs> Join us forever in the Crowdcast world. This was really great. And also, just like I'd love to hear about your research generally when you're not writing a book with Jay. And I'd also love to hear more stories about Jay. He sounds and like more raw chicken. Yeah, more raw chicken. and vomiting and choking and high mm -hmm. maneuver stuff. I've got we don't have. We don't have enough vomiting on in lieu of fun. Uh, we will be back. What Maybe is it? Twenty three. What is the count? What are how did we get twenty two hours and fifty six minutes from now? I'm sorry. And are we until... gonna have a guest tomorrow? Oh yeah, and we're gonna. But sometimes we don't. We don't always do. Anyways, we have no, a guest. No, but that when we when Alexandra Brodsky is... is going to be talking about her book, Sexual Justice, which I think will be very interesting, and she will be back uh, twenty-two hours and fifty-five minutes from now. And until then, Ben, we don't have fun anymore. Uh, and if we're lucky, we don't have raw chicken either. But some of us do. Dominic, it was a pleasure. His the link to the, his book is in the chat. You stepped on the line, Ben. You had the perfect line. What was it? it we can't have fun anymore, but we can have us. Oh, oh good point. Oh, good that would have been. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're out of the group, Ben. You're right. <laughs>